We have potentially 1.7 million documents about foreign surveillance, most of which is legal, that's been released, and a debate over the very program he was concerned about that has expanded in the years since he did that. And he's living under the cover of a repressive regime. I don't blame him for not wanting to come back, and I think that what he did was a net positive because I can't even imagine what those surveillance programs would have looked like a decade later now if we never had the American public realizing our rights are being violated. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, I see you're back in the studio. How are you feeling? I'm feeling better. I think it was a little medication on an empty stomach mishap. And you're upstate. How's that? Yeah, I'm up in Conondagua, uh, up outside of Rochester. Really lovely up here this time of year, you know? I don't know if the mm-hmm. weather changed in New York in the past 24 hours, but I, it was like rainy and gloomy and cold in New York, and it's beautiful up here, which was the opposite of what I was expecting. Yeah, we have a sunny day here, but I think we're kind of in the depths of the, the cold still. And nice. have you has your game happened yet, or is that no, no, no. upcoming? <laughs> tends to happen on Sundays, so okay, it'll be well, Sunday. But you I, know, sometimes it's Mondays, I don't know. Maybe a Thursday. Yeah, I'm in friendly territory. Mm-hmm. A lot of Bills fans out here, so it's cool to see. Uh, so, you know, uh, it should be an easy win for us, which is why I'm going to this game. You know, I try to pick the games where mm. we're, we're overwhelmingly favored. So I think, I think sure, it'll be pretty good. Sure, why not? It's more fun <laughs> to win. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about Edward Snowden and his recent move to becoming a Russian citizen. We're going to talk about red-shirting boys in school. We're going to talk about Gen Z and a bit of a, a crisis of purpose that Gen Z is going through. But we're going to start, Ricky, with political ad targeting. There's been some really fascinating data that was just released about how political campaigns in this country are targeting potential voters. What did we learn? So this is new data that comes from Facebook and Instagram ad targeting, um, which Meta allows political cam- uh, political campaigns to target people based on gender, age, location, and also interests, which can be kind of amusing when you parse out um, what these campaign masterminds have decided uh, lines up with their base. But right now we have we've seen Democratic candidates in some of the most competitive races spend more than four million dollars on these targeted campaigns versus Republicans just six hundred and forty five thousand. Um, but there's there's some pretty interesting ones here. So Joe Rogan is um, some an interest category that splits people. But um, Fetterman and O'Rourke are both targeting Rogan fans versus Abrams and Whitmer are avoiding them. Uh, Democrats yeah, and- tend to go. Sorry, go ahead. Tim- Tim Ryan, interestingly, is avoiding them, too. You know, there's certain people yeah. you'd expect, like Tim Ryan, Bennett, et cetera, uh, are excluding. Like, Because what you're saying is you can yeah. either target somebody like Rogan, but you can then say, I don't want any of my ads going anywhere near Rogan fans, which it seems mm-hmm. like a, like a pretty sizable amount of Democrats are doing. Yeah, Ro- yeah, Rogan's really hard to pigeonhole. And so I think the fact that it's kind of all over the place versus who wants to target Rogan fans and who is excluding them specifically is uh, pretty interesting. Um, Some popular Democratic targets include NPR and Whole Foods. Republicans go for NASCAR and Cracker Barrel, which is a pretty interesting uh, comparison there. Taylor Swift, exclusively a Democratic category. A fun example, Marco Rubio goes for Chick-fil-A, Ram Trucks, and Duck Dynasty. So it's pretty fascinating. It's like a um, an insight into what these campaigns think 
their their possible target voter looks like. Yeah, Rubio was fascinating to me because you're always on the hunt. Like in the in the articles, it has this chart which shows you the Democrats or Republicans with like a blue circle around the Democrats, a red circle around the Republicans, mm-hmm. and you're on the hunt for any outliers. So yes. you know, interesting outliers were those Rogan folks like Beto and Fetterman. But then on the Republican side, you have Rubio who's targeting NPR. He's the only Republican mm-hmm. to be targeting. Yeah, NPR, that which was I find interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. And anytime you see people excluding people, I find that the most fascinating, which you don't mm-hmm. see as much on the Republican side of them excluding people, at least according to the data in the chart. The exclusion of Rogan's audience I found fascinating because I recently had a conversation down at the Texas Tribune Fest with former Republican strategist Tim Miller and Liz Smith, the Democratic strategist. And one thing we all agreed on was that Democrats were shooting themselves in the foot by not going after Rogan's audience, not after going uh, not not going after the UFC barstool type audience and and mm-hmm. saying, "Hey, like we're appalled by Rogan's, you know, positions and things that he said, so we're just going to we're going to not in any way engage his audience." We all agreed that that was a huge mistake and, and Liz was a uh, a strategist for Pete Buttigieg and had him on a lot of these platforms like Barstool for yeah. example, like Charlemagne the God for example. And, you know, this does worry me as somebody who spent a lot of time in progressive politics that they're just drawing big circles around huge audiences in this country and saying they won't engage them. Yeah. I mean, I think the Rogan scenario is just so fascinating because it is so hard to figure out what people who follow him feel politically. I think there's a huge diversity of people that just feel generally disaffected but might lean one way or another. And so I agree with you that missing that huge swath of kind of nuanced or politically diverse people is a huge mistake. And I think it's a growing population as well. So it'll be interesting to see um, whether someone can kind of grab them. But I think this this falls into like a larger history of politics, which goes back to 1968 with what was then called micro-targeting, which started with Nixon going for white Southern voters and has changed with technology pretty considerably since then. Um, by 1996, Clinton was using um, consumer data to build voter profiles. Then by 2008, online ads had popped up and Obama really won the digital fight in that campaign. And then it goes all the way up to 20. 2016 and scandals that happened in that election based on on social media advertising. And so I think that even though it is kind of funny to laugh at the fact that Fetterman's going after microbrewery lovers and Tesla lovers, um, it's actually, to me, a little dystopian that we can have these ads that are so specifically targeted to our personal proclivities. And it almost feels like a way that we could end up in even deeper echo chambers if if our politics are we're no longer even being um, like shown the whole swath of what's out there on a political ad while we're watching TV. It's like we know who you are. We know what you like. And we're going to um, kind of double down on your preconceptions and and put that right on your feed. I don't know. How does that make you feel? Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the this debate played out like obviously the 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 idea of targeting goes back a long time. Jill Lepore wrote a really good article in the New Yorker, which also showed up in her book the, These Truths, where she goes all the way back to the birth of uh, political consulting. And there was this couple, uh, Baxter and Whitaker. It was mm-hmm. a, a it was a, a woman and a, and her husband, and they would take turns each year running this campaign consulting firm. It's really the first campaign consulting firm in modern history. And essentially, what Lepore does is lay out a history from post-World War One all the way up into the 60s that you talk about where they basically mm-hmm. 
created campaign consulting as an industry and then trained all the people from the 60s forward who then went on to mo- you know modernize campaigns do all the targeting that you you were talking about and bef- you know it was huge computational machines in the 60s and mm-hmm. 70s in some cases it was targeting without computers and then obviously became more and more sophisticated with Carl Rove it was direct mail when i was on the obama campaign in 2008 there was a huge debate. I used to work for Axelrod, who was our strategist. Mark Penn was the strategist for Clinton. And Penn was a big proponent of micro-targeting. And what Axelrod yeah. used to say is, uh, you know, he basically was like, if we're going to create a message, it has to be kind of universal. And we don't have the time or the resources to go after every little niche audience. Now, it's mm-hmm. fascinating. And, and we I think we won that debate in large, you know, in, in part because of our philosophy. We had a more universal message. What's interesting is the Obama campaign turned around in 2012 and became the pioneers of micro-targeting against Romney. Uh, and at this point, every campaign embraces this. You know, even media yeah. companies embrace this. You know, we, were, we read this Jonah uh, Goldberg article at our last retreat called Regret to be Informed by You, which he basically talks about how we've moved from broadcasting to narrow casting in the media sphere. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just like a general trend that kind of depresses me, the idea that we no longer are incentivized to speak to voters as individuals and as to just people. And instead, we look at them as groups and and in terms of group interest, and I think we kind of lose that that personal connection and the need to not just kind of pile up your tallies all together and then say, okay, now I've hit 50% or, or but with kind of this conglomeration of all these different groups. Like, I think it's just, it's caused this like, I don't know, it's caused tribalism and partisanship because we're not talking to, to the broader constituency, to your point. And so I think that that's, a really sad direction to see your politics go down. But I don't know, did you, Ravi, were you able to see what your own personal targeted categories are? Because I did. I did, yes. Uh, and so for listeners, you can go to Facebook and download your, you know, basically the ad categories that, that different businesses use to target ads your way, which I imagine is also the same for your Facebook and your Instagram, given it's yeah. the same company. So for me, it was Apple Watch, water sports, surfing, surfboards, underwater diving, which is interesting because I've never done underwater diving. Buffalo Bills, CrossFit, interior design, which I, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you, Facebook, for thinking I would be interested in that. Fiction writing, creative writing, United States Tennis Association, and Wimbledon, which I've never been to. But yeah, very aspirational. I mm-hmm. I don't mind that profile of me. It's, it's I would say it's like 70% yours? accurate. No, I mean, the list is so long. So my I just picked like the top like, 10 or something. You know? My list I think was in so order. long. Yeah, give me, give me your top whatever. Yeah, because I, I think they're so, rank ordered. Oh, they're rank ordered? Oh, well, I only have the random ones that I pulled out because my list is literally like endless. I could keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, which is what happens when you make your Facebook when you're 11. They get a lot of data (laughs) on you between then. But I would say there, there was like a lot of like, like, retail kind of clothing oriented stuff for me but one thing that I found was interesting is animal rights was pretty high up there but so was hunting so Hmm. that doesn't really make sense I would never hunt Um, and also they think that I'm pretty into forks so I'm not sure what that will do politically like like the the utensil utensil? yeah I'm not sure why so um, I don't know maybe maybe Fetterman will go after me because I'm into forks we'll see wow 
you know, in general, I think there's a version of this that could be great because it allows people to be more specific about mm -hmm. the kinds of messages they use to motivate people to turn out and get engaged in our political process. Obviously, this could be done for evil. It could be used to divide people. It could be used to, you know, directly contradict yourselves in different audiences, right? Like either by emphasis or explicitly. So, you know, it's one of those things where we know it's not going to go away. And so it's mm -hmm. just something we're going to be be stuck with from here forward. Now, there's, I think, a more pernicious question of data that's been dominating our political lives for a long time, going back to the Obama administration. And this is around the government's use of these various technologies, like, you know, we're talking about what the campaigns can see, right? Edward Snowden uh, made big news back in the Obama administration by releasing potentially as much as many as 1.7 million files at least to journalists back then and at least or upwards of 7,000 of those documents have been uh, reported on and released by the journalists that he handed those documents over to. He initially went to Hong Kong and then wound up in Russia where he's been for quite some time and mm -hmm. we just got some news Ricky that he has become a citizen of Russia and I think this is an opportunity for us to you know, dust off some of these stories about Snowden and say, all right, Snowden, hero, villain, something in between. Where do you come out on this debate? I think I come out um, on the hero side pretty cleanly. Um, I, I am very sympathetic to his reservations with coming back home. But I think that this news breaking that he is a Russian citizen, especially right now, given everything that's going on in the world that we all know about, is like being used to dismiss him in a way that he he must be a tool for some enemy. But I think it's really important to remember that he flew to Hong Kong with these files. He handed them to journalists to disseminate. He never released one on his own. He gave them the condition that they could only do it if it was in public interest, not just because it was newsworthy or exciting or salacious. Um, and then he just was trying to get to Ecuador, um, which Ecuador had given Julian Assange refuge in their, um, in their embassy. And so he in that process was in a layover in Russia when the American government invalidated his passport. He couldn't leave. He got stuck in the terminal. He did not choose to be in Russia. And he's staying there because he feels like he will not be given a fair trial in the U.S. And they have given him refuge after he was trapped for weeks in this airport. Um, so I just I would I would like to just kind of put a little asterisk next to the fact that he's a Russian citizen, because right now the optics look really bad. But he is there because of very extenuating circumstances and not by his own design. I think that's really important to lay out at the front. Yeah, I, I, I'm not, I don't think it necessarily needs to be a binary, right? Like hero villain. I, I think it can be complicated, but I'm very much on, on the villain side of things here. Mm. You know, that might be a strong word, but I would say not hero. Uh, is where I am on him. And, and one reason is because of the proportionality here. The guy handed over 1.7 million documents or upwards of 1.7 million documents. He says that it's not that many. Um, that's a government estimate. Let's I don't, pretend I, it's I don't know. Thousand. But yeah. it's in the thousands. Let's, it's certainly yeah. well in the thousands. Yeah. It, at the very least, hundreds of thousands. But it's, it, is, it is a lot of documents. Uh, mm -hmm. He admits he didn't read all the documents, obviously. And to me, mm -hmm, he, it's, it's semantics to say, all right, it's... I handed it to journalists. I didn't hand it, you know, I didn't just release them. Like when you're talking about secret I don't think documents, that's semantics at all. Well, when we talk about, for instance, Trump, right? Like we 
we generally agreed it was inappropriate for him to keep top secret documents in his house. Now, he didn't quote unquote release them, but at the moment that documents become unsecure, especially this many documents, you've compromised everything in those documents. The US government essentially has to say at that point, all right, anything in here, especially when you're in countries like Hong Kong and Russia, like anything at this point, you have- When he, have- when he left Hong Kong, he destroyed all of his personal accesses to those records. So since he's been in Russia, he doesn't have this like database that's just floating around with him. Everything that he released is in the hands of journalists. So first of all, like everything, we have to take his word for it, right? Now he's a guy who says, don't take the government's word for anything, right? Which in a way I'm sympathetic to that now, but somehow we have to take his word every time he says he's destroyed documents or not. I, I don't trust one person, an unelected official who shouldn't have had his hands on all these documents to begin with and actually in some way stole people's passwords to get them to tell us that he's destroyed them. But let's let's say he did destroy them in Hong Kong. He accessed them in a hostile foreign country. He also handed them over to multiple people. And some of those people have shown themselves to not be very credible with like the sanctity of information he gives them. He even accused Barton Gelman, one of the people he handed documents over, of compromising Snowden himself by sharing one of the aliases that he was using online. So these are people who like we shouldn't be trusting with secrets in the United States government. There's a proportionality piece here. Even if we agree that, which we can have that debate, like let's say he did expose some things that were illegal, right? There are a lot of things that were legal that he released into the public domain uh, explicitly. He didn't release out, any of them ex- into the public domain personally, though. That was explicit- all... Well, he he demanded of at least Gelman that Gelman uh, report on the prison program, right? Now, the prison Which program includes hugely important. Yeah, but the prison program includes legal spying on foreign enemies, right? So, like to me, this is a guy who demanded that we release information about how we're spying on foreign governments, which is totally legal. Did he demand that he they release all of that information, or that they release what's per? that they release what's pertinent to the American people. See that? Because is, there's... Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. That is a critical question but, because there, I mean, there, they only publish 7,000 files. And if it's 1.7 million, as some estimates say, those were picked and, cho- and chosen on the basis of what is most pertinent to public information. And I think it, to give him, to give him like some fairness here, let's talk about a few of the things that we learned because of him that we would not have known otherwise. And that I think personally completely have changed the conversation about privacy since then and put it all on our radars, including the fact that every major telephone provider in the United States was giving the NSA phone records of American citizens. PRISM was allowing them backdoor access into our personal data. X Keyscore was letting the NSA search, quote, nearly everything a user does on the internet if they so choose. Um, They have techniques to bypass encryption. The NSA was doing offensive hacking operations. They were collecting 200 million text messages worldwide in Dish Fire, spying on dozens of foreign leaders, intercepting every single phone call in the Bahamas and Afghanistan. Can I pause for a second? That's the NSA's job. Like, the the NSA's job is to spy on foreign leaders. Okay, okay. Okay, taking every every major telephone provider was giving the NSA access 
to Americans' phone records. That is completely inappropriate. There was a legal action that he exposed, which he exposed just by allowing journalists to expose it. He didn't even make the editorial decision here because he was not capable of doing that as a 29-year-old, but he saw that Americans' constitutional rights were being violated. He realized that that was something that the public did not know. He realized that he was not the the person with the authority to say, I am going to just dump this out there like Julian Assange. And so he went to the press to do that. Well, give me a second on this one. So uh, first of all, the metadata program, they took phone numbers. They, what they got access to is the phone numbers and the duration of phone calls, right? Now, mm-hmm. uh, people love to cherry pick which courts are saying this is legal and illegal. At least 15 courts ruled that this program was legal. U.S. also reauthorized the program. After in 2015, they reauthorized the program with some reforms. In 2018, the Office of the, Office of the Director of National Intelligence admitted that after that was passed, the U.S. is uh, collecting three times as much data as they were before this so-called reform that, that Snowden is somehow responsible for. So like now we've released all these documents, right? Let's, let's agree to disagree agree about what release means as somebody who you know who used to have a top secret clearance if i hand over thousands of documents 1.7 million potentially documents to a reporter that means that everything i've handed over we can all agree the u.s government now has to assume that that information could get in anybody's hands i think anybody can agree on that now what did those reporters report on they reported on a whole bunch of things that we all know are legal Emails that the U.S. is accessing, emails of the mullah in Iran, emails, text, voicemails of the Taliban, right, that we're spying on foreign governments, including our friends. So what? That's what the NSA is allowed to do. It's actually in their charter that they're supposed to be spying on foreign governments and people. Uh, and there's a ton of reporting out there that this put United States national security at risk. So the New York Times itself, which participated in the reporting of this, uh, in an article reported that ISIS has explicitly talked about how they've changed their patterns of communication for this. And this was confirmed by three separate private security firms Mm -hmm. who all looked at ISIS and Al-Qaeda's communications after the Snowden leaks. And you don't even have to take the private security firm's uh, word for this. (laughs) You know, there's there's apparently a jihadist propaganda organ uh, published by Al-Qaeda. And in March 2014, they came out with an issue where they just stopped after the Snowden release, stopped talking about the encrypted technologies that they're using. So it's very explicit. And you don't even have to take their word for it. Greenwald himself has said, he quote, he published, quote, basically the instruction manual for how the NSA is built. And he said it would allow somebody who read them to know exactly how the NSA does what it does, which in turn would allow them to evade the surveillance or replicate it. Now, that means that those are the foreign enemies of the United States who can replicate our surveillance capabilities. To me, that's treasonous. The New York Times published that article about how their own article was being used by by Islamic extremists. Like, I think it's important to realize that they made the editorial decision to publish this. Yes, Snowden made the decision to give them that option. When he handed over the documents, he he expressed a desire not to have them all released. Um, and they have not, thousands of, of documents have been kept because they were either showing legitimate action or they've been dangerous. But I would say I completely agree that some of the journalistic actions here were certainly questionable, um, went too far. But I would remind 
everyone that journalists here in the in this over the Snowden situation got a Pulitzer Prize. The documentary maker that followed him around got an Academy Award. And this guy published zero documents himself. And now he's in Russia, cannot come home because he doesn't feel like he'll face a fair trial under the Espionage Act, which I think is a completely let's fair talk about that. Yeah. situation. And, yeah, and let's talk about that. And let me clarify one thing about the Greenwald thing. The last thing I said, which was that it would allow anybody to replicate our, the NSA's capabilities. He was claiming in that point that he was holding back some of that information and not publishing so I he was be holding back a lot and uh, most of the critics actually most this, of the like have you read it like what, when he published this stuff it talks about the the methods the u.s uses overseas to collect secrets on our enemies right like i don't understand mm-hmm. what the and on some of our allies as well though so snowden and greenwald and we could take them all as a group they didn't start the debate they ended it like the minute you put that information into the public domain you end the debate about whether the U.S. can do it or not, right? You decide as an unelected person, as one person. I thought we didn't want, you know, to to put all this power over national security and our secrets in the hands of one unaccountable person. And somehow Snowden takes it upon himself, or maybe him and Greenwald and Poitras and Barton Gelman, four people, get to decide what millions of documents, including that, you know, tons of people potentially, uh, you know, their safety is at risk, their their livelihoods are at risk. They've put in tons Tons of time as as public servants in the United States to try to keep us safe, and they unilaterally decide, as a you could say it as a group, not just Snowden, that that they're going to take it upon themselves to release things, many of which are illegal, most of which are legal. So to me, that's a Who's, problem. Okay, but but I I would genuinely I'm asking, is there an example of someone who was working on behalf of the U.S. whose safety was put at risk as a result of this, or or is there an example of a terrorist plot that was going to be foiled that wasn't? Like genuinely, I'm asking because I I feel like if if the if that was the case, if there were huge things that we fumbled as a result of this release. That would have been made public and put everywhere. And aside from this very legitimate concern that we have from ISIS of or from the Islamic State that they were utilizing some of the methods that were published, I haven't heard this frontline like now the NSA dropped the ball on this because of Snowden. And I expect that we probably would have heard that considering how much chatter there is around him. Like, I, where are the concrete examples of all of the terrible things that happened on a national security front? I'm sure there. Are some, but they're all kept private. We can't know that as public individuals, but we do know now that there was clearly illegal activity happening that was probing into Americans' private lives with new technology that was unprecedented and and a, a, just the scale of, of surveillance that ways. we could never have imagined. I know it goes both ways, but, but you, I also but, think... But yeah, let me explain what I mean by that, though. It, it goes both ways. Name a specific person whose uh you know whose life was destroyed because the US government was using these techniques right well like, i think that they weren't because now we know and we had a public conversation about it that's lasted almost a decade now and we but even may have never them. understood that we but, like, we may have never understood that Take it from pre-2013. Well, who's the person whose life was destroyed in pre-2013 that wasn't like an Al-Qaeda leader? I'm sorry, is it Angela I mean, it's Merkel? American. Why, why are all American citizens getting pulled up with private companies being utilized as a mechanism to, to collect data without Americans knowing that? Like, I don't see the case for that. But American citizens don't seem to care. 
2015, after two years after the stuff all. was released, let me give you some data on this. 2015, two years after the the stuff was released, 82% of Americans say it's acceptable to monitor communication of terrorists, 60% leaders of other countries, 54% leaders of other countries. Most were not concerned about the government monitoring their own digital behavior. And we know this because nobody true. cares. The US tripled. No, 57%. And that same data, 57% said it was unacceptable to monitor US citizens. That's not, they said, that's the majority somehow, who say it's yeah, but unacceptable. Both those, but both of those data points are true. So people say, the majority of people say in the abstract that it's unacceptable to monitor US uh, the communications of Americans. And that gets to my point that there was a targeted way to release this. You could have had that debate. There was a didn't. targeted way to release he, he it. And I, would, it I wish the, the journalists had that debate. I wish the journalists yeah. had that debate. And I wish that a 29-year-old man who did not ask for all of this to drop into his lap, who realized that there was illegal activity going on, was not now being treated as this terrible traitor on the basis of the journalistic principles and mistakes that that other people made. I mean, but, I just, I just can't. Yeah, but he's responsible that. for that. He's, a, he's, he, he's takes it upon himself to be the civil disobedient. By the way, when, when people were were sitting in at lunch counters, they didn't run away from the police. They took consequences for their actions. Somehow, we're saying he's a civil disobedient. He whether the he wanted to get to Ecuador or not. The charges, the charges against he, him under the Espionage Act would would allow him to be charged without a proper jury trial, without the defense of his cause in the public interest. That. He, is not a fair trial. That is that is just simply not a fair trial. And the Espionage Act since World War One has been used to to jail anti-war activists, to go after socialists. It's not fair to have a closed trial and to strip him of his single defense, which is that he broke the law to do good. There's no there's no case of whether this is legal versus illegal. Clearly but what wh- he did was illegal. The question is, is it right or wrong? And if the jury can't listen to his his motive defense, then they then he's going to jail for 30 years and I don't blame him for staying in Russia and I support but his he decision. becomes in that case he becomes a he becomes like any civil disobedient in you know in history he becomes somebody who uses the example of the law he's breaking and the, the way that the law is coming down on him to try to make a point to reform those laws instead of going to one of the most repressive regimes in the country accepting their citizenship and by the way he's a citizen Wait, of except, Russia right and now. he didn't or, yeah he didn't but hold on, ask let me just to finish be in Russia point. he's a, no, but he is a citizen and he's accepting that citizenship. Am I, are we going to hear about him criticizing Russia, which murders its journalists explicitly? He, he has been highly critical of Russia's human rights abuses and violations consistently since he's been there. He's been highly critical of Russia. I'm, I'm actually genuinely curious about this. What has he said? He said that they have a terrible human rights abuse uh, history. And he said the United States will always be my home. He's made it very, very clear that he is willing to go to prison to come back here to stand trial so long as he's able to face a jury of his peers, which as an American citizen, I think is a completely reasonable thing to want. And in the setup that he has right now, if he cannot provide his public interest defense and the 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 only thing that the jury has to find or that a judge has to find behind closed doors is that national defense information was given to unauthorized people which clearly yes it was clearly what he did was illegal that's not the question here the question is was it in public interest did he have a legitimate motive to be a whistleblower or was it not and if the question is 
purely on legality, then I don't blame him for not wanting to come back. And I think that what he did was a net positive because I don't even I can't even imagine what those surveillance programs would have looked like a decade later now if we never had the checks and balances of the American public realizing, holy shit, our rights are being violated by our own government. The checks and balances aren't still aren't there. Uh, because people don't care. The very data you talked about, I was to finish making that point earlier, when you ask people in the abstract, should the US be spying on its own citizens? They say no. When they say, are you concerned it's spying on you? They say, I'm not concerned. Same poll. I don't care. I but I don't care if people don't care. I the constitution still matters. Our rights still matter. Even if people don't care about their rights, they still matter. And I'm still going to defend them on their behalf. Yeah, but here's here's my final analysis. Like unquestionably. Nobody disputes that most of what he released is legal. He doesn't dispute that. Greenwald doesn't dispute that, that it's Mm -hmm. legal, right? Now, uh, the metadata program, courts have gone back and forth on this. And as it stands, it expanded in the period of time after he released it. So what do we have? We have potentially 1.7 million uh, documents about foreign surveillance, most of which is legal that's been released and a debate over the very program he was concerned about that has expanded in the years since he did that and he's living under the cover of a repressive regime claims to have destroyed where do you want him to go and we have he should come back to the united states okay and so would you be willing to give him a fair trial and to let him be in front of a jury of his peers which is I, if I were the right of unilaterally, Americans. if I were unilaterally making this law, I absolutely would be for that. And I actually okay, think well, that I he think would that's, get that. I think he absolutely should have been afforded that right. I, I mean, I'm okay with not even pardoning him as long as he can actually provide his public defense or his public interest defense. I am all for him coming back. That is his own personal stance. But I would say to me, when I hear that this this, these programs and these surveillance programs have gotten potentially worse since his release. That's proof to me that they got worse even with the public scrutiny. And if there wasn't public scrutiny in the first place, I can't even imagine how extensive the surveillance would have been that we are under today. So I am sure that it's less bad than it would have been if there was no public interest and and no no public feedback on how their own data and their own communications were being abused. Yeah, I guess we'll I guess we'll have to see what happens from here. I think like to me I think what what it comes down to this is like an ongoing debate we have. Like I'm always skeptical about how people really care about their own privacy in this country. In some ways I wish they did care more. But I'm I'm waiting for the evidence of like the big protest, the big, you know, yeah, action I mean, by government, the, the big, you know, the big congressional move to safeguard the privacy rights of anybody, whether it's from private companies or the government. Well, I just my final say on that is I don't care if people don't care about their rights. I believe that they exist and they shouldn't be intruded upon. Doesn't matter to me whether or not they're even aware of that. I think those boundaries are important and they're there for a reason and they're in our constitution. And Snowden swore an oath to our constitution and to defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And to me, that's what he did. Well, Ricky, let's switch topics. Uh, That was a fun debate. Let's have another. There is this article in The Atlantic by Richard Reeves about red-shirting boys. And essentially, this term is borrowed from athletics, and it got a lot of attention in 2008 when Gladwell uh, presented evidence in his book, Outliers, that children uh, who are 
older when entering school, older than their classmates, tend to do better academically and in life mm-hmm. generally. This is this has long been a practice in sports where, like, just physically, if a kid is older, they tend to be do better than their peers. Obviously, in sports, uh, Richard Reeves wrote an article in the Atlantic saying, "Hey, we need to consider redshirting boys," and he gives a ton of data about how developmentally boys take longer to mature than women among many other pieces of evidence he brought here. And he said, all right, this, there's already a trend happening in elite circles, private schools, et cetera, of some parents starting to delay the start for boys. But he argues that we should be doing this at more at scale. We should be doing more from a policy perspective to incentivize this, especially in public schools where there's more mechanistic, uh, you know, whatever your age is, you must start at a certain age type stuff, whereas private schools are more flexible on this stuff. Uh, this definitely ignited a big debate online. Where do you come down on this? You know, I think um, this actually made me kind of reconsider some of the things that I've been thinking about in the past with this educational gap and the outcome gap between girls and boys over the past few decades and how girls have just left boys in the dust in terms of college, in terms of everything. And I think like it's it's a demonstration of the fact that I think less so that boys are not being empowered, but more that girls brains just clearly develop different and quicker and conscientiousness skills, which are Um, very critical to academic success and showing up on time and doing your homework and making sure that you have everything in line is just something that girls have a leg up on. And so I, you know, I I mean, I don't know how I feel about broader policies. Um, If maybe boys should start kindergarten at six and girls five, but certainly like if I had a son, I would probably do this because, you know, I, I mean, 14% more girls are school ready at age five and um, the the differences in how they perform start at age five and then become the biggest at 16 to 17, which is exactly when the college process is happening and when you're, you're supposed to be achieving academically and things are kind of stacked against boys when boys and girls are in the same classroom just on the basis of their biology. So I say if parents want to hold their sons back, that should be just fine. Yeah, I'm with you on this. I think it's tough to make this argument sometimes because I think there's so much data, as we've talked about, about mm-hmm. how there are certain um, there are, there are a lot of parts of society, whether it's the ranks of CEOs or senators, presidents, where women are have been underrepresented and continue to be, and we've had a you know many discussions and debates around why that could be the case and so i think when people hear oh hey there's a crisis among boys and that boys need a different treatment than women in the education system I think certain people bristle at that and say, all right, now we're concerned about boys. What about women? But I I do think we can walk a chew gum at the same time on this kind of stuff. I think we can continue to fight discrimination against women and still talk about unique challenges that are facing boys, right? And it doesn't discount issues that women face. Uh, And so I'm with them that this could be something that we experiment with. There's a ton of data. Um, There was a study uh, down in Tennessee, for example, where like, people are starting to test what this looks like and boys they they tested both men and, uh, boys and girls who redshirted and found that the boys saw huge benefits whereas the girls saw much less so so there's definitely something to back up the the mountain of cognitive and neuroscientific data that yeah. Reeves provides in this article and to me that's what we do you follow the data regardless of how inconvenient politically it is right and it is a it is a weird argument i admit to be like hey like boys are in crisis right i know that it, it sort of pushes 
certain people's buttons who've been fighting for uh, gender equality in this country for a long time, and I get it, but I do think the data is pretty conclusive here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty clear. The, it reduces the risk for boys of repeating a grade. It increases the odds that they take the SAT or ACT. The, um, until eighth grade, benefits are twice as big for boys than girls if they're redshirted. And by high school, only boys benefit from it. It doesn't seem to really help girls in the long run. Um, but lower income students are benefiting the most. And younger students that that are in classrooms with them don't seem to have any consequences as a result of it. Um, but I think there's like a kind of class situation going on here where a lot of higher educated parents um, kind of realize this reality, start doing this by design, start holding their sons back. Um, for example, it's 20% of summer boy born boys with college educated parents get held back. And so I think expanding this, especially considering that kids from lower socioeconomic backgrounds stand to benefit the most is probably a service to society. I am all for making sure that people kind of start in the same place. And I don't think the difference between a six-year-old and a five-year-old is really all that important. And I see all the time, even at my high school, we had like a post-grad year for um, boys that were going to go, or predominantly boys who were going to go to college for a, an athletic endeavor. And so they get one more year to, to get the experience to bulk up, to be ready to go. And like, to me, that's so much less important than giving them that benefit as a kindergartner. And so we do have academic models that build this in with that expectation for an athletic stand or from an athletic standpoint. And I don't see anything wrong with building it in from an academic standpoint as well. Yeah, it, there, there is a downside, obviously, which is parents have to arrange childcare for another year. And this gets to the equity point here. You know, Reeves talks about how the students that we should be most concerned about are the lower income students who are the least likely to avail themselves mm -hmm. of this right now. And so I, this, I think this gets to the availability of resources for childcare and how we need to really accelerate you know, the pre-K availability, et cetera, to make this something that's equitable across the board. I didn't see any data on this, but I, could you theoretically have your son do kindergarten twice, repeat a grade, if childcare is a, a consideration? I would imagine that repeating would be potentially a solution to that so that they could get that's developmentally ahead of time. Yeah, I mean, I'm, a, I'm generally of the belief that we should be having kids repeat more grades. Like back when I was starting my first school in Tennessee, the... The big debate there, and for people who are new to our podcast, I used to be a school principal in Nashville and a superintendent in Tennessee and Mississippi back, and which is probably the data set that some of these studies are pulling from. The the I was a big proponent back then. There was this big debate around whether you hold kids back when they fail subjects or not. And the big pushback is just how mean that is to kids and how like, you know, uns you know, like how, how it's not sensitive to the fact that they're going to get older while the kids around them stay the same age and all that. But this seems to address that critique because actually in a way you're doing them a favor. You're being like, all right, yeah. you're a little bit bigger. You're a little bit more cognitively advanced than you otherwise would be. And if you're a boy, you're really just catching up cognitively uh, and emotionally to the girls in your class already. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good idea. I would do that. Now, I do think that there is there is a debate. There's just so much sensitivity to holding kids back, I think, for a lot yeah. of the wrong reasons. Like, we don't want to hurt kids' feelings. But, like, to me, like, the hurting the feelings, first of all, you could frame it in a positive way. But hurting their feelings, to me, is secondary to their long-term life outcomes, yeah. where, to me, it seems I like I also don't think five-year-olds are really thinking that way, to be honest. Like, I can remember there were a few red-shirted kids in my class in kindergarten, and they just, like came in with some thunder like they were they were large and in charge and they were kind of into their 
uh, role as the big kids on the block. Like, I don't really think five-year-olds are personally offended by the concept of being being the, the king of the playground necessarily. Right. Right. Well, there is one thing I wanted to ask you about with this, which is the question of essentialism and gender essentialism, right? Because often on this podcast, we criticize racial essentialism and at times gender essentialism, saying, all right, we should pick this person because of their gender, or we should make broad Mm -hmm. generalizations based on gender. And obviously, this is a, in adjacent to that. It's saying, hey, here's a broad category, 50% of the people on this planet, and we're going to make pretty broad claims about them. Is there something to critics who say that this is just too, uh, this is this is not precise enough, a conversation? I mean, to me, it's not on the basis of gender. Like, there are very clear biological differences in terms of brain development that I don't think there should be any taboo about talking about because they're they're real and they have measurable impacts. But to me, the only place where I think this gets too general is the issue of when people are born in a year, I think is kind of interesting here because you have summer born kids that are much easier to hold back versus some people will have more benefit to be held back because they will be that many more months ahead of time versus someone might just have a few months of a benefit. So I think that there is a lack of nuance surrounding that specific issue because there's there's a whole host of different benefits yeah. to, um, to draw from this. But by and large, I'm... I think that talking about real and biological differences, especially in early development, like that's, it's measurable. We can see it. I think we all know anecdotally that boys kind of screw around a little more in their younger years and that girls tend to be a little more dutiful and conscientious and keep their heads down. And they, they clearly achieve academically on the basis of it. And I, I mean, to me, I don't have any issue with that sort of conversation. Yeah, one thing I think what I saw in Tennessee with my kids, and I started as a middle school principal, which is where you see this, this gap more than I think anywhere else in the school system. What you see in middle school is that the boys come in and their issues are way more on this uh, among the category of struggle to pay attention in class, doing like immature things, fart jokes, getting into fights, yada, yada, yada. Whereas the female issues at that time are way more advanced. You know, mm-hmm. like I think dealing with way more mature subjects, yeah. um, grappling with hormonal changes. Uh, I would say they're they are way more mature, but also more complicated. Like any parent of a girl knows this is like it becomes way harder to connect with a female student in middle school than a boy. Because the boys are just kind of Neanderthals at a certain point. <laughs> They're just like, when I was in middle school, I was getting into fights. I was cutting school. Whereas I think the females, for them, the the, the moves that they make uh, are way more sophisticated and difficult to deal with. I saw this firsthand. And I think a lot of parents, you know, in the Reeves article, he quotes a lot of the parents who seem to, to validate this. It is very different. Absolutely. And I think it's probably, I mean, at least in my biased experience, a little more miserable in some of those um, life chapters to be going through those more complex and more uh, kind of catty chapters as a girl. So maybe letting boys catch up a little bit might be a benefit. I don't know. But um, should we move on to the next life chapter here? Yeah. Well, this is related in a weird way, Ricky. Um, There's this article in Newsweek that that you've been sending around and Fascinatingly, this also looks at Tennessee in part, which is very mm-hmm. exciting. Uh, Nashville schools, which is where I spent some time. What's your big takeaway? What's the thesis of this article for people who haven't read it yet? So the thesis of this article is essentially 
Gen Z is totally thrown off track by the pandemic, which is not news to anyone that we're going to school or going to college much less and that some people are also working much less. And I think the general case here, there's a little counter argument. It's very, very long. It's their cover story. But the general thesis here is that this is a bad thing and it's going to harm young people in the end. Um, But just to give some figures to the kind of college exodus and how much things are changing here, enrollment's down 10% over two years, which represents 1.4 million less students in our college programs. It's the largest uh, hit in half a century. And we have a huge reshuffling of how young people are planning to go down their educational and career paths. One in four high school seniors say they've changed their plans. And we went from 71% of Gen Z that were considering college literally just two years ago to 51%, which is a 20% drop. So we have hashtag not going to college trending on TikTok and people like me who did that and are um, might have a little bit of a different take. But I think there's clearly good and bad and nuance here. And we have to wait and see what kind of comes of it. Yeah, I mean, every generation is defined by some major event, right? Yeah. You know, you go all the way back to World War II, but then you have, you know, my generation was 9-11. It seems like, obviously, COVID is huge here, Ricky. Like, most of this is being painted as a negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I think you see a little bit of a, a silver lining here. Um, yeah. Because college, you know, it's not that just Gen Z has just decided to think differently about college. College has changed uh, since Absolutely. even I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, I think it's before I get to my very biased take as someone who dropped out of college, I think it's important to kind of parse out some of the clear human costs that are going on here, including this whole new um, demographic of Gen Z that's being called uh, disconnected, who are neither going to college but also not working, which surged by a million people between 2019 and 2021. Um, more likely to be young men, kind of related potentially to that last conversation that we were having. Um, it was 12.4% of 18 to 24-year-olds before the pandemic, and now it's almost 17%. It's 23% of Black youth fall into this category of disconnected uh, versus 17% of Hispanic youth and 15% of white youth. So we have an additional 1 million people who are young and just adrift, and there are widening disparities as a result of it. So I think that even in the conversation about, um, which we'll get to, of whether there is some good, healthy market correction going on here, there is this broader pattern of disparities widening as a result of the pandemic and this whole new class of kids who are neither getting a degree nor building a resume that I think could have some really long-term impacts on society. Yeah, and they they in part quote some people I've spent some time with, the Martha O'Brien Center in Nashville, mm-hmm. which helps kids in a lot of distressed neighborhoods uh, navigate, you know, the your pathway to college or to alternative careers. Yeah. And they also look at data from Nashville itself and say this is a particularly struggling city in this respect. They have six public schools that saw a college going rate of less than 30% in 2021. Mm-hmm. I guarantee one of those schools was the one in North Nashville, which is the school that my kids would have otherwise gone to. The lowest rates were 29% for Latino and 42% of black students. This is in 2021. Asians were 66% and whites 59%. So big racial disparities here, economic disparities, et cetera. And this gets to like what's very frustrating to me about the debate about the pandemic effects. I think it was Mm -hmm. a member of the 
a San Francisco school board who said in response to their, you know, very lethargic response to COVID closures that, oh, it's not learning loss, it's learning change. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't want to acknowledge that there's learning loss during the pandemic. And yeah. I'm like, this is, we've gotten to the point where these postmodern theories of, you know, achievement is some like white supremacist like uh, ideology and it's, a, mm-hmm. it's only a measure used to like, keep people down i'm like no it's actually the people who are racist who don't want us looking at achievement right they don't want us looking at these disparities because it allows the status quo to continue we have to confront these brutal realities i want to hammer home the fact that this is one in six of gen z that are in this disconnected category and not building anything at this period of time which a lot of people are attributing to the mental health crisis um we're at double the rates of young people saying they feel hopeless since just 2009 to today. Like this has long-term ramifications. In 2018, researchers used data to look at what these former disconnected youths are earning in their late 30s. And they were making $31,000 on average versus the um, typical person who was connected, who may or may not have gone to college, making an average of 78000 So I think we we can't even begin to conceptualize what pulling the rug out from under people's feet at this um, really critical age kind of point where you're supposed to be launching, and then their failure to launch might mean down the line for themselves, for society, and it's one in six young people. So as much as I I would love to move to um, some of the more positive silver lining things in our conversation now, but I think it's very important to say that the the effects of the pandemic were not blanket and uniform, and we don't even understand the tip of the iceberg of what this will mean for society down the line. Well, in in talking about the positives, uh, Emma Camp Uh, appeared on uh, The Hill Rising, and this is what she had to say. You know, I think the worship of the college experience has been the driver of a lot of really poor financial choices for a lot of people who say instead of going to trade school or two years of community college and then transferring to a four-year university, a lot of people signed on to go to four-year schools, um, often private schools that are way more expensive than public schools because of this kind of seeking after this college experience, which ultimately probably isn't worth a lifetime of student loan debt. I'm kind of with her. We've talked about the, the how expensive college is and how colleges are letting people down. But I think where I'm a little bit concerned is that the alternative path doesn't seem very strong either. It's not like these kids are, at least according to the data, finding their purpose in large numbers outside of the college system. Well, I think it's way too early to know that because it's only been a couple years and a couple of kids first couple years treading into the broader economy. They have to start somewhere. And I think that we're going to continue to learn that. But I think anybody who came down on the side of um, forgiving college loan debt and student loan debt should analyze the fact that right now there is a market correction and young people are responding to that that conversation that our culture had about, is it worth it? Are people actually making more money in the end? And one statistic that I think is really critical here is that a third of the nation's colleges see a majority of their graduates earning less than the typical high school graduate 10 years later. So there are so many academic institutions that are just fundamentally failing the kids that go to them. 45 million people are drowning in students. Student debt right now and tuition. I mean, Gen Z is looking at the biggest tuition bills 
ever. Tuition has increased 169 percent between 1980 and 2019. And half of high school students are worried about graduating with debt, which should come as no surprise considering our cultural conversation. And I one statistic that gives me some hope is that 62 percent of high school students say they want to forge their own educational paths and half believe that they can be successful without a four-year degree, which in some cases very well may be true. In other cases, there might be trial and error. There they were going into a really strong job market a year ago and, you know, going forward with the recession, that might not be the case. But I think that it's really important to realize that it's not all just despondent kids who say, I don't really care. And one stat that I think really hammers that home is that nine in 10 high school students say that they want better career preparedness programs in college and that they don't feel like that's something that's being offered to them. So that's 90 percent of college students or high school students that feel that way. And I think it's reflective of the fact that we have this luxury product that is supposed to give you a guaranteed job, a guaranteed income. It's failed a lot of people. People are are hurting for money after a pandemic. And a lot of young people are looking at it and saying, maybe I need to go my own way and maybe that'll be healthier. And I think at least that's applying a little market pressure back onto the colleges to actually serve their original purpose. Well, Ricky, when we think about like the silver lining here, maybe more is like, how can we be proactive about this? Whether you're a parent, whether you're somebody mm-hmm. who's, you know, working within the education system or you're just somebody looking to help, you know, just move this forward, right? Yeah. What should we do? Well, I think the biggest thing that is happening and I think should continue to happen is destigmatizing the idea that you're not going to college. I, I think that's, you know, if you want to do your own path, if you want to go your own way, if you have a legitimate plan and you're not just going to um, crash and burn, I think that's something that should be celebrated. Independence should be celebrated. We have different trajectories and paths in society and just prescribing a very expensive one and having a monopoly on success is not a healthy thing. And one thing that I think is really great is that the labor market is changing very rapidly right now. And a ton of businesses have been shedding uh, requirements for for degrees just to get your foot in the door, um, including IBM, for example, that removed a BA requirement from half of their job postings just last year. And I think that you know society is going to change and realize that there are very competent people who might not have that institutional stamp of approval, but that looking at them more holistically as human beings and realizing that what we value as a society might have to shift post-pandemic is a very healthy thing and and making sure that we all kind of appreciate the pressures that young people are put under right now with the cost of college, with the issues with the pandemic. I mean, I think looking at people more holistically is what we should do going forward. Yeah, it strengthen the vocational programs, apprenticeship programs, you know, shorten certain career uh, college tracks like for instance like do we need people to become lawyers to spend seven years in college for example Mm -hmm. you know like maybe you know alito i think made this point in a speech recently where he's like why don't we just have kids like in like in other uh, countries take four years to become a lawyer and you could you could say that across the board right there's a lot of things Mm -hmm. that we're spending way too much time and expense training people to do those shops. Well, Ricky, I think that's it. That's all we have for today to our listeners and viewers. Make sure to give us that five-star rating wherever you get us on your podcast. Hit that like button on YouTube, and we will be back next Tuesday. That's all we have today. Thank you very much. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, Editing and sound design by Monica Espitia and Joe Engelbrecht. Video editing by Ava Maldonado.